Hi there, this is Daryl Macias, your host for the Wilderness and Environmental Medicine Live podcast. This is the December 2018 issue, and we have a few discussion papers, some from the journal and some from outside the journal. We'll be talking about Porter Health in Nepal, which is very interesting. Nepal. Yeah, that's God's country. And then we will be talking about avalanche and cold weather resuscitation. So the first paper we're going to discuss is a review of the paper in the journal, High Altitude Illness, Knowledge, Practice, and Attitudes of Porters in Nepal. Our moderator is Dr. Jake Jensen, and you know him. He's going to be talking to the authors of this paper, Drs. Pranawa Koirala, Seth Wolfing, and Janet Peterson. And I think, yes, this paper is interesting because it not only is a study about altitude illness, but it touches on very key populations. In fact, a certain key population, the porters, often overlooked in the literature. And I think that many of us who go to the high altitude environments are conscientious about the environment out there and the environment we create for those that helped us in whatever type of expedition we may be going on. And so this paper will give us insight into what those that support us really have to go through. And who knows, there even may be some policy changes as a result of this paper. Well, Jake, let's go. As Daryl said, regarding high altitude illness, knowledge, practice, and attitudes of porters in Nepal. And this is a topic that both myself and Dr. Macias have an interest in. Those that have listened to the podcast in the past might remember that the last year we actually went to Nepal to teach basic medicine skills to a large group of Sherpa who are mainly guides and porters throughout the Khumbu Valley. And we're going to be doing so again this year. So this is something that we are very interested in and glad to know more about. Okay, authors, give us a little bit of information about your background. So uh, my name is Seth. I'm a clinical associate professor at University of Washington. I'm research funded. And uh, my first trip to Nepal was in 1995, right after I finished my undergraduate you know, just backpacking around Asia and stuff. And I fell in love with it, as many people do. I came back 15 years later as a faculty member with a group of undergraduates. And part of that course was a trek to Annapurna Base Camp. We were strongly encouraged to use porters on that trek. And uh, since part of the course was, you know, discussing health issues, we we talked and, and uh kind of, it just raised a lot of questions about porter welfare. And a lot of the students got close with a lot of the porters. Um, I became more aware that a lot of the porters were not actually, that they were coming from low-lying villages and not Sherpa. Um, And it kind of planted some seeds for research. Um, I went back in 2011 for a climbing expedition and we piggybacked um, a, a research project onto that, a survey research project. And we collected data but we only had park approval and I, had, I hadn't gone through the correct procedures for getting NHRC approval, which I realized later. So we couldn't publish those results. Um, and what we did was we improved the study protocols. We went through the correct procedures and got approval from NHRC. That's the Nepali Health Research Council. And uh, we collected data again, this time during a trek to base camp, Everest Base Camp. And Dr. Peterson, who's on this call, was part of that. And she really led the data collection. And shortly after that, at a stage race around Manaslu, um, I met Dr. Pranav. And he joined our team graciously. And he ended up leading the analysis and the manuscript preparation. 
One quick question for you. You mentioned on this first trip when you were on the Annapurna circuit that you were strongly encouraged to use porters. Who was it that recommended that and why did they strongly recommend that you use porters? It was someone who had had been living in in Nepal for 13 years and he's a scholar, um, not necessarily of mountain medicine, but he just really felt that it was important from an employment perspective. Um, You know, I hadn't been in Nepal in 15 years, definitely not in a leadership capacity. And that was his his perspective, you know, he encouraged us to make sure that we were following guidelines that the porters were carrying, not carrying, you know, excessive loads and stuff. But on that trip, that was the messaging I received, you know, since he was senior and had more experience in Nepal. And, and because my chair was nervous about how these students would do, it, it made sense to go that route back then. If I could do it again, I would have the students probably carry their their own packs. <laughs> yeah, definitely a growing experience to do that and realize how hard it is to really support yourself. Yeah, it really it's it made me so aware, um, and I think a lot of the students of you know what positions we were putting the porters in and and what their what their lives are like at least a little bit about what their lives are like. So it sounds like these prior trips and attempts to do research were really kind of the impetus that cause you to ask the question that you're attempting to answer in this paper. Yeah, I've I've always been interested, increasingly so actually, in the last 10 years in, in endurance uh, kind of activities and stuff. And it's one thing to go out and do something like that yourself, but to look around and see porters who this is their occupation. You know, I think it's hard to go trekking or climbing in Nepal and, and some other countries as well, like Tanzania, and not recognize the hardships that a lot of porters are facing. You know, we'll get, we'll get to some of the more different aspects of the paper, but I do remember as I was leaving the Kumbu Valley earlier this year, I was coming down Namche Hill, and I saw a group of porters stopped, and one of them, I could not believe the size of his load. He appeared my age, and I just, out of curiosity, asked him how much he was carrying, and he looked up and with a big smile said 94 kilos, and it just blew my mind. It's really crazy. Well, if we could have Dr. Kurala and Dr. Peterson, if you guys could introduce yourselves and give us a little bit of background and how you guys got involved, that would be great. Pranav Kurala, I'm uh, a senior emergency medicine resident at uh, Virginia Tech Cleveland Clinic uh, Emergency Medicine Residency. I was born and raised in Nepal, where I completed my medical school. During my medical school years, I got exposed to Mountain Medicine Society of Nepal and with which I got platforms to work with different high altitude events. I really wanted to kind of uh, get into, you know, some sort of uh, activities that would help them in long term. Um, I came to know about this project from Seth. Apart from this, I'm also interested in uh, bringing emergency medicine and just emergency care to Nepal as a whole and um, I'm right now in Nepal as a part of my residency electives working towards that goal. So I'm Dr. Peterson, Janet Peterson, and I'm a professor at Linfield College and I teach, I have a doctorate in public health and I teach exercise physiology and nutrition. I actually was the uh, physical activity and nutrition section editor for WEM for a while, for a good number of years there. I actually helped a, a friend of mine collect data for her Fulbright in Nepal on a trek, Everest Base Camp trek. Um, and she's a human geographer. So we were looking more at the human geography side, but I was first exposed to the plight of the porters uh, during that time. And then as a side gig, I teach wilderness medicine. And that's actually how I met Seth. I was teaching a uh, woofer class 
and I said something about Porter Health and Seth spoke up and great minds think alike and we just started planning the next steps of the study and so that's kind of how I've got involved and then I was uh, went back with Seth and the team to do the data collection on the study so that's kind of my involvement there. Tell us about the study, the study design and how you guys went about gathering data from the porters and the questions that you asked. We actually put together the study using a Delphi technique to um, organize the survey. And we did that based on a pilot study that we had done before that Seth already kind of uh, alluded to. We modified the survey using a team of experts, and then we trained two Nepali research assistants to help us deliver the survey in either Nepali or Sherpa. And what we would do is we we got up to Lukala, we, would, we started the survey, and I would sit with the two research assistants and they we would identify a porter and ask them if they want to be involved in the study and then they would ask the questions and i i oversaw that whole process just to make sure if there's any questions um, and we did that all the way up to um, the uh, last few stops at Everest Space camp on the Everest Space camp trek so we ended up with 146 surveys that were usable for data analysis why don't one of you guys tell us what were the questions that you asked and what were the conclusions you came to as you asked these porters about their health and experience working in the Kumbu Valley? We asked a lot of different questions, mainly relating to high altitude illnesses. Also, um, with regards to a few other uh, subjects, the, those were which were you know, kind of uh, very related with their work activities, like they carry it and then you know, the, the distance they uh, travel in a very long, big sentence, uh, if I had to give you a brief summary, uh, we found that borders uh, in Nepal, in Kumbu regions, start out kind of early and uh, are carrying maybe a, a little bit more weight than what they're supposed to or what, what is the common guideline. They uh, do this with very little preparation, unlike what was previously uh, you know, kind of uh, previously uh, believed that uh, they had uh, some kind of, uh, you know, uh, high altitude uh, illness uh, knowledge as, as much as the trekkers. We found that they did not really have very high degree of knowledge as far as the symptoms and uh, the ways of prevention goes. They definitely had some misconceptions about uh, acute mountain sickness. So we found uh, a lot of uh, scope for further education um, in this population. Yeah, I'll jump in and just say, I mean, there were some pretty things that kind of disturbed me, like the, the inadequate footwear, the high rate of porters reporting feeling very cold, the lack of people asking about their welfare. You know, we had one question, other people often inquire about my health and only 17% said yes, that the places they're sleeping are not clean or comfortable. Only 35% said that they were. And you know, if you've been out there trekking, a lot of a lot of trekkers don't realize that porters are are often sleeping in in kind of shacks behind the lodges and not in the same standard that the the trekkers sleeping in. There's a lot of pressure to go faster, and that they're worried that if they do have a high altitude illness, that they won't get hired again. Yeah, no, excellent point. You guys make the point in the paper to point out that a lot of those individuals are not necessarily there because they enjoy the work itself, but they're there for economic reasons. It's higher paying than other jobs that they may have. And you mm -hmm. kind of hit the nail on the head there where you explained that many times these individuals are not from high altitude and not very well prepared with their equipment, et cetera. 
and oftentimes feel that pressure to not ask for help or try to receive help from others because they feel that that might limit their employment opportunities in the future. And I feel that's a really good point to make, that these are individuals who are there to make their livelihood, but may not be as prepared for that job as you, as many people think that they are. I was just going to say it's an important point that they really do feel that pressure to not say that they're sick, not tell somebody they have a headache, because if they say that, then they lose that job. And that's so important. I found this uh, during uh, how did you trip in that region. Uh, oftentimes when you're as a team doctor, you try to evacuate or you try to um, stop the border from ascending for further. You often fall into a very uncomfortable position where it's almost like you're taking away their livelihood because they are they want they stop earning money from that point because they are daily wage earners they don't have any kind of insurance to cover up that and then they uh, go they have to go back uh, and then they are often labeled as uh, having you know some kind of sickness and uh, they fear that they will not be able to get jobs uh, that uh, you know that easily uh, the next time oh, excellent points now do you feel that this pressure do you feel they feel more pressure from maybe expedition groups that are either going on climbs or treks or more pressure from maybe a, a different operation where maybe they're hauling supplies up to a lodge or, or hotel further up the valley? I definitely feel that it's the commercial uh, porters that feel the pressure the highest. Yeah, I think there's pressure from all angles, regardless of what kind of porter you are. If you're a commercial porter stocking lodges, you those lodges might be waiting for their cases of Coca-Cola to feed the hungry or thirsty trekkers. And the trekking porters have pressure because they're carrying, you know, all the personal stuff for these trekkers. And the trekkers want that stuff when they show up at the lodge. And, and then, of course, the climbing porters have pressure from the climbers who want to get to the summit. Let's get back to maybe some of the, the knowledge regarding high altitude illness. Now, in the paper, you guys surveyed, as you mentioned, a good number of individuals that were working in the Kumbu Valley. But when you asked them the symptoms of high altitude illness, 12% were unable to identify even a single symptom. The remaining participants could name at least one, with headache being the most common, followed by other complaints, shortness of breath, nausea, vomiting, fatigue, problems sleeping. Was that expected for you guys to to get 12 percent that couldn't even name a single symptom or was that something that surprised you all well having worked there uh multiple times and uh have having had that conversations with with these borders this population i i, I honestly i i expected um, at least uh, at least about that number uh for you know like not on being unable to call out a symptom I mean, in a way, I mean, 75% that could identify a headache, that's good, but it should be 100%, right? So in one side, I was, I was happy that they could at least identify something in many cases, but I was pretty, I was pretty um, taken aback that 12% that couldn't identify anything, yet they're working. That's, this is like a risk of their job, and they should know what the risks of their jobs are. We also, we had 92% said that if they get a headache, they shouldn't go higher, and you know, I think uh, when we go back out in the field, it behooves us to look better at how we phrase the question. You know, I don't doubt that there's there are not quite a few that can't recognize a symptom, but I, I, you know, those two findings are a little bit at odds with each other. And so I just, I wonder how we worded the question and if it was understandable. I remember we had some issues with using the term, is it Lech Lang? How do you say it, Prana? 
Lake Lagny. Yeah, and I, I know we went back and forth on that item, but I think that still there's a big lack of knowledge. Right. Well, and it might be that they don't understand the term high altitude illness, like you said, yeah. and that they know not to go higher if they have a headache, but they don't know why. Like, right. don't go higher. It's dangerous. But that is that high altitude illness. I can't define that. I think that's an excellent point, because as you guys said, night, there is a high percentage that said that they would go down if they had symptoms. But yet when they look back at what they had done previously, 27 percent reported that they continued ascending with the headache and or vomiting. They may say one thing, but in reality, it seems like they're not always turning around when maybe they know that they should. And that might play into some of those economic pressures that we discussed earlier. Continuing on with kind of high altitude, it seems like while 12% could not identify any symptoms, at least 75% could identify the headache as a symptom. What about prevention strategies? Did those that could identify symptoms of high altitude illness, could they or could they not identify effective prevention strategies? We didn't actually assess the data from that angle. And that's actually a really good idea is I could actually run the stats where I just look at the people who could identify symptoms and then and then look at um, prevention strategies. We just asked prevention strategies as a standalone question. And so that's that would be a really great different analysis of the data. Well, let's go with what you just said. So looking at you guys saying that you um, asked them about prevention strategies, it seemed, if I'm reading the paper right, 63% were unaware of any way to prevent high altitude illness. Is that correct? Right. They couldn't identify how you prevent it. What were the strategies identified by those that felt that they, that they knew how to prevent high altitude illness? The biggest strategy was drinking water. That was their, that and garlic soup. And then mm -hmm. the second biggest strategy was ascending slowly. Based on my experience, I agree. When we were teaching these individuals up in the Kumbu Valley, when we talked about high altitude illness, all of them, you know, pretty much indicated, oh, just drink more soup, drink more water. No soup for you. But none of them brought it up on their own to ascend more slowly and was something that we emphasized in teaching them. And I think this is where the trekking porters, the people who are working with trekking organizations might have a slight advantage. And that would be another data set to tease out or to actually look at would be because the trekking companies ha are ascending slower. Therefore, those porters are going to send slower where the commercial porters, the ones who are bringing the coke to the lodges, they're not necessarily going to have that information. So exactly why do you think this knowledge gap exists if they're employed by trekking companies or others? I can understand if maybe they're employed by a commercial company and they're simply asked to take, you know, take these supplies up to this lodge, hotel, et cetera. But why do you think this gap might exist by those who are employed by companies who are likely educating their clients regarding altitude illness? A couple of reasons, at least. One is it does not require any kind of educational level or any kind of credentialings or any trainings to uh, become a porter. That's one. They start out with very low levels of education. And then the next thing is the trekking agencies. I do not think uh, all of them um, try and enforce high altitude illness uh, education or you know some kind of training in their in their basic trainings to become a porter. Uh, as far as I know, I was going to just add that I think that there's a tremendous lack of follow through or oversight by trekking companies that uh, they should really, as Pranav just mentioned as well as the government probably, you know, there, there needs to be an organized system for training and monitoring and 
and educating porters. And the commercial porter stocking lodges have even less like oversight and they're carrying even heavier loads. So at least there are some trekking companies that are doing a good job at, at monitoring their porter health and porter loads and stuff. But no one's really looking at that for commercial porters who are paid more by the kilo and stuff. Yeah, so as you mentioned, there might be various organizations, groups that are trying to do this, but there's nothing unified and no requirement for training prior to working as a porter. And apart right. from the sign before you enter the national park, if they don't read that, there are those that probably won't have any education or knowledge of altitude illness um, yeah. as they continue yeah. to go higher. And like you mentioned, many of these individuals in the paper you discussed, it's hard to know the exact altitude that they live at, but many of these individuals are not high altitude dwellers and actually live at much lower altitudes and come up there simply for economic reasons. And there's just a huge lack of educational, you know, uh, educational materials that are written at an appropriate literacy level and stuff. There's so much work to be done. So today we focus kind of on altitude illness on our discussion. Are there any other medical issues such as GI issues, musculoskeletal issues, et cetera, where you feel that there's a serious lack of knowledge that you guys might try to tackle next and try to help out with? We did find some GI issues, but, um, well, that's that's one of the surprising uh, points. We did not find so much of it. Uh, most of them reported cough um, and uh, just feeling cold, uh, which, uh, like we said earlier, we did not define it really well. Some of them did report fever, about 20% or so, and some of them reported foot problems, which uh, may or may not be related with the bad footwear observed during this study. Some of them did report back pain, and uh, anecdotally, uh, while working down in Kathmandu, I've seen a lot of these porters retire at very young age, uh, you know, early 40s with very bad back issues. I think these are all related with the porters, the just the nature of their work, especially the back issues, the foot problems. I think, and and and, and some of them reported frostbite as well. Again, related with very bad, you know, overall uh, clothes and preparation. I'm interested in the load carrying and the physiology of it, even though I don't have a strong background in that. But, you know, I, I would love to see some development around better systems for load carrying. Hopefully that doesn't um, incentivize them to carry heavier loads, but instead the same loads, but with better biomechanics. I'm also interested in the, the high rate. I believe there's a pretty high rate of alcoholism and a high rate of chewing tobacco. If you check in, in Nepal quite often, you'll start noticing chewing tobacco um, packages that are on the trail. But that's not quite as big of a concern as like the altitude issues for me. The whole public health issue alongside the porters, where are they sleeping, the clothes they're wearing? Do they have sunglasses or at least a sun hat? Just those simple things that will improve their health overall. These wilderness medicine guys are really, really, really good. Thank you to Jake and thank you to the authors. A few weeks ago, the International Commission of Alpine Rescue or the ICAR, had a meeting in Chamonix, France. And if you don't know much about the commission, there is a subcommission, if you will, or a medical commission dedicated to alpine rescue, where I spent the majority of my conference time. 
discussing with others some of the breakthroughs with medical considerations in alpine rescue. One interesting study that I'd like to bring up was discussed by Dr. Mathieu Pasquier from the emergency department of Lausanne University Hospital that's in Lausanne, Switzerland. And he, with some other authors, just published this article in a journal, Resuscitation, you've heard of it, Resuscitation 2018. And the title of the paper is Hypothermia Outcome Prediction After Extracorporeal Life Support for Hypothermic Cardiac Arrest Patients. The HOPE score, H-O-P-E. And with this winter coming, I thought it would be a timely article to discuss. By the way, don't hesitate to let us know if we can provide a copy of this article for you. But here's the summary. Now in Europe, as in the United States, of course we're starting to see this in the United States, ECMO or extracorporeal life support and extracorporeal membrane oxygenation or if we abbreviate it extracorporeal life support, ECLS, is becoming the rage. And this has been used especially for patients who suffer cardiac arrest. And we're seeing it used in hypothermic cardiac arrest. So the decision to initiate extracorporeal life support for these patients suffering hypothermic cardiac arrest has previously been based on the serum potassium level. For instance, 14 milliequivalents per liter used to be this old cutoff for potassium levels so that if your potassium was above that, you wouldn't get extracorporeal life support, ECLS. You wouldn't get ECMO. But then the guidelines or recommendations would go down to 10 milliequivalents, and now it's eight. But what was interesting was that this paper that I'm referring to had a goal to build a more robust prediction score in order to determine the survival probability following rewarming of a hypothermically arrested patient based on other variables that would be available at the admission, hopefully. The authors looked at nine predictors of survival for hypothermia. And these predictors of survival were age, they were sex, core temperature, serum potassium level, mechanism of hypothermia, cardiac rhythm at admission to the hospital, whether or not the cardiac arrest was witnessed, the rewarming method used, and CPR duration prior to initiating ECLS. And the author's primary outcome parameter was survival to hospital discharge. Here's what the authors did. They identified a bunch of patients through a systematic literature review with some unpublished hospital data added. Now, obviously, this gets a little tricky, and so the authors ended up justifying their meta methodology, I should say, because they added some unpublished hospital data as well. And so that does get a little tricky, but the results were pretty interesting. And the authors justified this methodology by including consecutive primary hypothermia cardiac arrest victims, and not these victims that had a secondary hypothermia after having had a cardiac arrest from other causes or, you know, some of these other case reports that didn't have enough data. And so that was very important. And you can read about this methodology in their paper. They also excluded these cases and convenience samples as well. And the reason they excluded some of these cases and these 
single case reports is because they wanted to minimize any possibility of bias. And when there were patients who were not in cardiac arrest when ECLS was started, well, they were also excluded out of the study. Ultimately, they had 237 patients identified through the 18 studies in the literature and 49 additional patients that were obtained from the hospital data collection that I just mentioned. And so from these numbers, they found that there were nine potential predictors of survival that I alluded to earlier and that you'll be able to look at very soon. In total, there were 286 included patients and almost 40% of them, 37% of them to be exact, survived. And of those who survived, 84% had a good neurological outcome, which is not exactly alluded to in the paper, but we'll take it. The authors then derived a final score, which would include the variables of age, sex, admission core temperature, serum potassium level, cooling mechanism, and duration of CPR. And so the authors found that if they were able to use more of these variables, this was much superior than simply getting a triage potassium level alone to decide whether or not a patient would benefit from extracorporeal life support. We have to be careful. We have to keep in mind that this was a derivation paper that the authors were able to find factors that were key to survival, but it was a retrospective study. And so there hasn't been any prospective validation done on these variables. And so obviously an external validation of these findings would be nice to have. But it appears that the few hypothermic patients that presented at these hospitals would have pretty good neurologic outcome after using this tool. One of the problems if you're a rescuer is you may not have a point of care potassium measurement available to you. And this is obviously a weakness maybe in uh, the paper because this is crucial to the paper. While that is nice, there are also some other things such as if you didn't have all of these variables measured, you couldn't really assess the probability or the chances of survival. But, you know, the authors were gracious enough to develop these parameters as an online tool or as an app that you can find here under https colon forward slash forward slash www.urg dash admin dot ch forward slash hope. So for example, I was tinkering around with this and I put in a 30-year-old male whose hypothermia mechanism was asphyxia from a full snow burial. And the CPR duration was 10 minutes, and the serum potassium was 8 in this theoretical case that I just made up. The person's temperature, core temperature, was 30 degrees Celsius. And so the HOPE survival probability score in this patient, if you will, was 2%. And then I did a permutation I changed one parameter, and the only parameter I changed was that instead of it being a male, it was a female with the same parameters. And this patient would have a 9% hope survival probability score. So it seems like it's bad news if you're male. So sorry, guys. Now, if you were to give the same female a serum potassium of, say, 6, then the score jumps to 19%. 
And if it's a male, it only goes to 5%. It's a pretty interesting tool. Keep in mind, it gives you a rough guideline on how to maybe approach some of these patients. But of course, clinical judgment is always necessary. Unfortunately, in the field, avalanche medical management isn't always unified as far as our approach because there's a lot of differing opinions as to what you do with minimal rescuers with multiple burials. And there was an interesting paper, if you want to look at it, published in PLOS One in 2017 called The Concept for Optimizing Avalanche Rescue Strategies Using a Monte Carlo Simulation Approach. Now, what happens is that according to an avalanche triage algorithm, you want to maximize the number of survivors, obviously, and you don't want to spend a lot of time trying to rescue one person or undig or excavate one person who isn't salvageable when you could have had a better chance salvaging other individuals. And so if you look at this paper, it's a theoretical paper that was based on approximately 1,500 avalanche burials. And what the authors did, which includes uh, Dr. Manuel Genswein, who we have discussed uh, previously in our previous podcast about some of his innovative avalanche teaching techniques. Well, anyways, what would happen is that with these 1,500 buried subjects, the authors would figure out, well, if there's a certain amount of depth and if a certain amount of burial time has elapsed, what is their chances of survival? And really, the test scenario is quite simple. What do you do if you have, say, two buried subjects and one rescuer? And there is an example given in this paper that the first excavated patient in this theoretical hypothetical rescue has no obvious lethal injuries, is normal thermic, but without vital signs, and the second patient is still buried. What are you going to do? So do you increase the survival chance of patient one because of the duration of CPR while you decrease the survival chances of patient two? Or do you just forget about patient one and go to patient two? Now, the European Resuscitation Council suggested in 2014 to perform CPR on the first patient either until return of spontaneous circulation or a max of 20 minutes before proceeding to patient two. But there's another triage algorithm called the AVSORT, A-V-S-O-R-T, recommending not to spend any time on that first patient who isn't breathing despite an unobstructed airway, but to continue searching for and digging out that second patient who is a potential survivor. So here comes the Monte Carlo application. And in short, according to Genswyden, it ends up that spending between five and seven minutes on a patient is probably the maximal time that you should consume before trying to find the second patient. And while it's a fascinating subject, keep in mind that this is a simulation and has not been validated in the field, but it seems to be a useful guideline to help guide a single rescuer with multiple burials. Some of the other things to keep in mind are that burials that are deeper than two to 2.5 meters are basically not going to end very well. And then there's an issue of the snowpack itself that if you keep in mind that the first 15 minutes are really important for asphyxia survival, especially under a non-permeable snow layer, then in this phase, every two to three minutes lost represents a decrease in the chances of survival by eight to 10%. So it's a very difficult situation. And if you talk to Manuel, like I did, there's some interesting burial techniques 
as far as excavation is concerned, where they use a conveyor belt method that's a little bit difficult to describe here. But if you have multiple rescuers, you basically form an inverted V-shape pattern where the vertex of the V has two rescuers, and that vertex points to right where you have located the patient theoretically, and you dig down slope, and you're moving the debris in a downward fashion where people behind you who also have shovels are helping to facilitate the removal of snow debris. And there's hopefully going to be a medical provider right at the front. The problem is, is if you've ever had to dig this kind of snow out, it's very fatiguing. And so what will happen is every two to four minutes, the position of the shovelers will change where the front people will go to the back and those in the middle will go to the front and so on and so forth. But what is nice is that in the Wilderness Medical Society, there is a clinical practice guideline for the management of an avalanche burial victim. And so I encourage you to check that out. And then lastly, there's an interesting brief report by Giesbrecht on the cold card to guide responders in the assessment and care of cold exposure patients in our journal. And it's basically discussing a two-sided card that summarizes important principles established by the Wilderness Medical Society practice guidelines for hypothermia. This is one of those things where you basically have to look at, but it is a very basic instrument that helps you classify whether somebody is cold stressed, mildly hypothermic, moderately or severely hypothermic with treatment options that would be available to a rescuer that are simple and on the back of this card, because what they're saying is this idea should be made into a five by seven card that is laminated and has a front to back. Well, if you look at the back of the card, it'll give you instructions on how to make a hypothermia wrap. And so I encourage you to look at that as well because winter is coming. We're gonna end this and I just encourage you to be safe in the back country this winter and we will talk to you soon. And thank you for listening to the Wilderness and Environmental Medicine Live podcast. This is a production of Elsevier 2018. And so be sure to fill out the CME questions and, again, be educated and be safe.